Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books and Military History. This is Boris Karpa. And we are going to be talk- We have with us a very accomplished guest. Alexander Kitty is an author, a, a reporter. She has written 18 books, and um, uh, among other things, she is the world's most dangerous woman. And um, I am going to have Alexander here to talk to us about a book which is of relevance to this particular show, which is a different track. Uh, hospital trade of the Second World War. I am honored to have you here with us today, Alexandra. You, you rarely get to interview the world's most dangerous anyone. <laughs> well, it's an honor to be here, Boris. Thank you for having me on. And I would like to start, you know, uh, some people are listening to our show through through a phone or through a music device. They can't access the information on the book, which is on the show website. So can you maybe just briefly explain to our audience what your book is about, what it brings to the table, so to speak? Sure. It's about hospital trains in the role in the Second World War. It's not something we uh, think about. It got lost in, uh, in over time. So I thought, you know, it was interesting that we didn't, I was, when I was starting to research about hospital trains in the Second World War, first thing I do is look for other books, and there weren't any. And I thought, okay, this is, I'm meant to write this book. So it's all about the role hospital trains had in the Second World War, what it meant, uh, how they were run, and basically a, a quick history about them for people who've never heard about a hospital train before. I'd like to elaborate on something which you've already told us a little bit about. Can you tell us about how the topic was chosen? How, you've, Because you do talk about this in the book itself, but it's a, it's a tradition here that we asked us, and I think it's an important topic. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you've selected the subject for your book? This was very personal because my grandmother was a nurse on a hospital train during the Second World War. It wasn't something she talked about a lot uh, when I was growing up. It was just during the last few years of her life when she started to think back. And she started to talk about it. I mean, I always knew she was a nurse on a hospital train, but what it meant to her. And she said that that was one of the happiest times of her life because it was the first time she felt useful and the first time she felt she had a sense of belonging. So when you talk, you know, when you think about your loved ones and what they meant, I realized this was a historical nugget and I really wanted to explore it. She was a very modest woman, so it wasn't like she would have wanted a book written about her. 
that was never who she was as a person. So how do you strike that balance between writing about somebody uh, who uh, meant the world to you and the historical significance of the, in the role that nurses and doctors played uh, during the Second World War? Uh, that made a, such a decisive difference in the outcome because so many people were saved. And that was all that she really cared about was how many people she saved. So I wanted to write on the record that, you know, these hospital trains existed and they had a life and history of their own. So that's how I, it became, it started personal and then it went more academic as I did more research on this topic. And as I always say, you know, we have a unique audience. We have a unique audience of the New Books Network because our audience are both readers and writers. Many of, you know, anybody who has read a lot of books has at least considered, you know, writing a book. And so for these people, for these people who some of them are working on a book and some of them are just thinking about it, can you tell us about some of the obstacles you faced, some of the challenges which you have overcome in writing this book? There were a couple. Uh, there were a lot of challenges. First of all, that I uh, there were weren't any other books written on this topic. There's lots of books on the World War II, and there were a lot of wonderful books on World War II, one of my favorite genres. But there wasn't on hospital trains, so I had to uh, basically work from scratch. And it's been so long that you know uh, most of the people who were on working on these trains are no longer with us, and that would include my grandmother. So trying to find academic journals, old newspaper or media articles on this, anything I could find, uh, I had to dig up to write it. So, And then you're piecing this together. So it's not like you have some sort of flow of information. You have little puzzle pieces and missing puzzle pieces, and then you have to put together a coherent book for people to understand. So that was the first big challenge. And I think the second one was how do you write about something that meant so much to your family objectively and scholarly. So trying to separate, you know, the emotional component, but not entirely because that's part of the, you know, the facts, you know, their emotional facts. So how do you do this without sounding uh, too much? Uh, you know, you do try to take some of the romanticism out and add information and various stuff that people can verify independently, but still make it, you know, people to understand what these trains meant emotionally to people because the trains were you know, saving people, but there was a lot more to those trains. So you have to, I had to look at the different aspects. What does it, this hospital train mean uh, psychologically? What did this mean strategically? What did this mean technologically? So there was a lot of things in, and I didn't want to bog people down with, uh, you know, becoming dry and boring. So you're trying to make this interesting. You're trying to make this objective and you're working from uh, little bits and pieces, because most people kind of forgot about it after the Second World War. So you have to go back in time, so to speak, and find all the information you need to tell a coherent story. And yet I didn't have a benchmark to do that because other people hadn't written books about hospital trains. And from this, you know, I would like to talk a little bit about the book itself, because, you know, the hospital trains which we see in the Second World War, they are, you know, they are, in a way, in a way, they are the end of an evolutionary, evolutionary tree of hospital trains. And you argue in your book that to some extent the hospital train predates the railroad. It starts uh, with uh, with uh, what we could call a hospital cart trains. Yes. Yes. 
or an ambulance so train. You, so can you tell us a little bit about this evolutionary process of which you know culminates in uh, the World War II trains? Well, you have basically, uh, they were afterthoughts. So when you were looking at, let's say, the Crimean War or the Spanish Civil War, they were had trains, but then uh, they thought, well, let's put some injured people and get them on the way to hospital. This is how they, ch- it was an afterthought. You didn't have a hospital train per se. Uh, but then as there were different wars going on, particularly in the First World War, uh, they had what they called an ambulance train or a sanitation train, which had some rudimentary, uh, it, they were made dedicated for hospital uh, treatments, but they weren't, uh, you know, the, the pro- focus, the way they were in the Second World War, where they were done by design. So by the time the Second World War came, you actually had an, a mobile hospital. They weren't, uh, you know, just patching people up. They were treating people. They were treating illnesses. They were, uh, they were maternity wards, too, because a lot of people were born on hospital trains. So what started as an afterthought, well, we have these tracks, we have this train, let's uh, stick some dying and injured people on it, to actually progressing by the Second World War to something where it was proactive, where we're going to save people on these trains, buy them time until we can get them to a hospital ship or a bricks and mortar hospital. So from the entertainment section to dining to uh, the operating uh, theaters in the trains, by the time that was in World War II, they they thought long and hard. They had feedback from the previous wars that used hospital trains, and then they, they decided to improve it. And even in World War II, how they started the hospital trains in the beginning of the war uh, weren't the way they were by the time they finished because there was instant feedback, and then they would just tweak the trains, the cars, uh, to reflect the changing battlefields, the, the, the supplies, the fortunes, and all that other uh, considerations. So they were very much in tune with, uh, and they could change them very quickly, uh, in tune with what was going on in the battlefields. So not only were they a result of a long evolution of technology, but they were also evolving, they're also being evolved throughout the conflict as people learned from their experience. And there's something which is very important to you and which is very important throughout the book, and I would like to drill down on that. Something which you talk about is a group of people who are, you know, underappreciated in terms of their contribution, and that's the nurses. It's, it's, you know, when we talk about the mass media, and with the exception of some Soviet films, which you do cover... It's very rare to see these hospital trains or any kind of medical institution in a World War II film at all. You will rarely see this on the big screen. And I do appreciate you do have a family connection, which you talked about with your grandmother. And it's generally an important topic. So maybe you can tell us more about these, these nurses and clearly people who, who deserve a lot more credit than they get. Can you tell us more about them? Sure. Uh, well, the nurses were very much like my grandmother. Uh, girls in their late teens who volunteered. My grandmother was recruited by another family member, which which in, ironically saved her life. And she became a, she got training. A lot of it was on the job training. And so uh, it ground Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Central Western Europe, North America. A lot of the nurses on these trains were very young teenage girls. In Canada, there was a recruitment drive for nurses for hospital trains. 
And there were so many young volunteers that they had to put a cap and say, okay, no more. We don't need any more. We have more than enough nurses. So these were young girls uh, willing to put their life on the line. Uh, a lot of them to travel to a foreign country or a different continent entirely uh, to help total strangers. So the nurses there were very much young. They were idealistic. Uh, they didn't have experience in war. They didn't have, a lot of them didn't even have experience in medicine. So, but they were willing and they learned very, very quickly. And this is something that we don't talk about because a lot of these young women right after the war, they got married, they had children and they didn't, they didn't think it was a big deal. You did what you had to do. So they ended up getting lost in time. So we have lost a, a major significant historical record because because of the circumstances of these young women who didn't think uh, much of it. They thought this is what they had to do. Uh, they wanted to help in the war effort. So these women who were on these trains, uh, they were very much uh, in contact with patients. There was a lot of physical looking after people, making sure they didn't get sick or if the wounds were starting to get infected. But they were also ambassadors in a way. They were helping people psychologically uh, they were spending time with patients. Patients were very happy to see the nurses. They became the face of the hospital trains, not just because what they did to patch people up until they could get them to a, a, a more established hospital, but because these young girls uh, became very attached to their patients because that meant so much to them. It was bigger than themselves. So the nurses there, uh, they were very much, it was a calling. It was... Uh, you know, they were getting along with each other. They were getting along with patients. So it was a very much a social aspect, thanks to the nurses during on those trains during that era, because it was so new and so different uh, that they didn't realize they were on something very cutting edge at the time, because they were they were just busy having to uh, you know make do with uh, bad rations or a lack of rations. Uh, my grandmother always talked about how they would have. Uh, parachute in uh, rations from planes and she would take the parachutes and make clothing from it. So there was a lot of improvisation, a uh, lot of unpredictable things they had to navigate. And these nurses did it and they did it calmly. And that calm brought was brought to patients who, uh, who could heal faster because even under the worst circumstances, they felt more relaxed with these, with these young women. From this, uh, from the nurses, I feel we do want to move on. We we do want to move on to the doctors because you talk about the doctors in your book, and those I really recommend to our audience that if you want to get all the details, they absolutely should get the book. But since we do have you here, maybe you could explain a little bit about the hospital train doctors, about what it meant to be a doctor on a hospital train as compared to a, to a brick and mortar hospital at the time. Well, the doctors there were more recruited through the military, and unlike uh, many of the nurses, they had the train. So these were people who were uh, doctors before the war. And then they were uh, recruited to be doctors on the train. So they had to be very much quick thinking, good at improvising. So the doctors in bricks and mortar hospitals didn't have the same considerations because the hospital trains were bombed. So the doctors had to think about that. They had to think about, they were in charge of things. So they had to think about the rations, the supplies. And a lot of times there would be people who wouldn't let uh, the, the trains through. So the doctors had to think, okay, did I have to bribe somebody? Did I have to... Uh, out with somebody. So the doctors on the trains had to be a lot more 
uh, savvy and street smart because they were constantly dealing with different kinds of dangers and obstacles that a doctor in a regular hospital or in a hospital ship where you're out in sea, at sea in a ocean, I didn't have to think about. So these doctors were, I would say, a lot more savvy, a lot more shrewd, uh, but they still loved what they did. I mean, when you read recollections of doctors who worked on a hospital train, even though they said, well, I had to bribe people or I had to get tough, they were actually very happy that they, they did that and that they saved lives. So their bottom line was, how many people can we save? How many people can we spit in a train? Uh, how can we get uh, farmers to give us foods as we're passing through? How can we get things? So the doctors there had to make different kinds of calculations. So they were a very much a, a very shrewd uh, bunch that were very much more primed on survival than just healing people. So they had a lot on their plates, more so than, let's say, hospital, right, more bricks and mortar doctors. This is not to detract from bricks and mortar doctors, but they were not on the go uh, where things, you know, there could be a bomb coming, there could be bomb fire, there could be grenades. It was a very different experience for hospital-trained doctors. And there's a big a big subject which you talk about, which I, I think is very important, especially for us as historians. And you talk about something which is the aura, the meaning, is the significance of these hospital trains in, in culture, in propaganda. And again... Um, it, uh, if you are in the audience, you absolutely should get the book. But I would like you to maybe tell us about something which is very important, which is what did all of this mean to regular people? What was the symbolism of this? There were many symbols of hospital trains to regular civilians. The first and the most obvious, obviously, is hope. Uh, you're injured. Uh, maybe your whole family has been killed. Uh, you know, your house has been destroyed. Uh, you're dying. On uh, You're being attacked. There's enemies everywhere. And, you know, you don't know. The soldiers are busy fighting. They might not see you. The hospital trains saw people. They would gather people up, and then they would put them in the trains and they had a fighting chance to survive. And what's miraculous is how many people did survive because they the hospital train reached them on time. So to civilians, it meant hope. It wasn't hopeless and that somebody cared. So it wasn't just, you know, well, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, you know enough tanks to uh, defeat the enemy. This is, well, somebody actually cares about me. Uh, somebody is going to uh, patch me up or patch up my children or my parents or my other loved ones, and we're going to be okay. So this uh, did an enormous benefit, so much so that even in North America, although there wasn't a battle on North American soil, they had hospital trains uh, bringing the wounded soldiers home. So for civilians in North America, the hospital trains uh, symbolized that they were going to be reunited with their loved ones. The second symbol of this, and this was a lot more subtle, was the triumph of technology. So World War II was significant in that technology won the battle. It wasn't brute force. So it kind of signaled to people that, you know, might might not be the only thing. You have to be smart. Uh, you have to be smart and technologically advanced. And that's also what hospital trains represented because in media reports, what was talked about on the trains was how cutting edge they were, how new. I mean, we almost find it funny now because this has been how many decades. But back then, that these were considered technological wonders. So you had technology and you had hope. 
in these trains going by. So you didn't take these trains for granted as something that where you travel. Uh, and a lot of trains were used for very nefarious purposes in the Second World War. And this was, uh, you know, a counter to those nefarious, you know, gathering people to uh, kill them in concentration camps. This was, we're gathering people to save their lives and liberate them. So it had a huge comforting impact on civilians. And of course, there's also the idea that, look, we're taking your loved ones, we're, t- you know, the soldiers are going off to fight abroad, but look, we have all of this, this uh, new, newfangled technology, which we've lined up to try and take care of them. So you are placing these, uh, your, your husband, your son, your brother, they're going to be in good hands. We are, there's a system which takes care of them. Yes. It's a system that worked uh, because of everything that was unpredictable in war. Uh, the trains were order in that chaos. So they ha- it was a, had a calming effect. So when you can't predict things, except that the trains are going to come to save you, you have hope. You don't have to despair. Uh, you don't have to worry as much. You have an out. And that was an escape for many people was the fact that they knew that the hospital trains would come no matter what, how bad the fighting was, no matter what the danger was. And there is a, something which I would like to tell me if I'm right or wrong, because there is a, there is a big idea, especially in American uh, culture, that there is a sort of social contract between you and the military, that you join up, you're putting your life on the line for, you know, for the country, but the country is going to, the government is going to do its best to make sure that you have the right equipment and the right food and the right medical treatment. And it feels to me that some of this propaganda, which you've talked about in your in your book, these pictures of the train which were published, these displays where the trains were were shown to people. So this was a way for the U.S. government to say, look, this is our end of the bargain. We are giving you, we, we, certainly the people will enlist and they will put themselves in danger, but we are going to support them as best we can. It was a big part of it, but I think the propaganda in that time with hospital trains was more subtle. It was, we are now going to shift from a more primal literacy where brute force means everything to more technological uh, uh, and analytical dominancy where intellect will win wars. So hospital trains were a big part of that until, of course, the, when there was an atomic bomb, which totally put everything else to shame technologically wise. So that's a part of the reason why we don't talk about hospital trains, because it didn't serve uh, it served its purpose, but it wasn't as it wasn't the showstopper as the atomic bomb. So it, it was a it was a very kind of subtle propaganda by the government. You didn't see a lot of hospital train pictures in newspapers, so that wasn't it. You did see a lot of hospital train pictures in brochures of these companies that manufactured to the government, and those pictures were funny because they would have uh, soldiers in perfectly pressed suits, uninjured. Uh, being carried on gurneys, which made absolutely no sense. Those were obviously not on the field because you're having people, you know, in pieces of the walking wounded. There, the propaganda with hospital trains, and it was much more subtle in a lot of ways, was trying to tell people, okay, now we're going to focus on intellectual dominance more than just, let's say, uh, brute force that we had known for uh, centuries. 
it was very interesting to me to see that kind of angle of propaganda. So this was in the context of the scientific way of war. The, the scientific minds which were going to back us up in our struggle against world fascism. They were more than the, the dot. It was definitely showing the power of medicine, the power of technology, the power of STEM, and which we didn't see in other wars. This was the first one where we seen this, and, and that's what won the war. And so this was a, a rise in a different kind of way of thinking, and it was very interesting. But hospital trains, the people didn't really appreciate those nuances. What they saw basically was there's a lifeline. So to the regular civilians, what they in the battlefield, what they saw was okay. I'm not going to die. Uh, the the governments or the military have come to, and have to come to rescue us, and they keep coming to rescue us. This isn't a one time one off. We don't have to wait for the uh, troops to arrive. We have our hospital trains. So there was a very much an emotional attachment to our hospital trains because the doctors and nurses came. I mean, I can talk about my grandmother. After the war for years, soldiers who she saved their lives would come to visit her. So they would come all the way to her home and, and they would visit her to thank her. So there was a lot of that goodwill. But that goodwill wasn't, uh, that wasn't the nurses planning a propaganda campaign. These were nurses who truly cared. Um, the more of the behind-the-scenes messaging came from people who weren't on the battlefield, the people who were manning the trains. Their only thing they cared about, the only thing they cared about, was saving other people's lives, making sure that they had food when they, there was no food to be had, uh, that they, had op- they were operated on, uh, even if they didn't have anesthesia, all that kind of thing. So you had, it was a very com- psychologically complex thing where, where people got comfort from the genuine, spontaneous uh, gen- altruism of the staff versus the more uh, behind-the-scenes uh, manipulations where people who were in power more far away were, were, were taking advantage of. And as I mentioned, we are creatures of tradition here. Tradition is really, you know, of course, it moves all people to some extent, but on this show, on this show, we have a traditional concluding question, which we always ask is, what are the books which you are yourself reading at the moment? Maybe there's something you would like to suggest to our audience. Well, there is, I will, it's on the theme of World War II, and the book is uh, from uh, Gregory A. Freeman, and it's called, it's a few years old, and it's called The Forgotten 500. And it's something also about uh, a historical nugget during the Second World War that many people have forgotten. And it was these uh, Amer- over 500 American servicemen who were stuck behind enemy lines and how uh, Serbian farmers uh, saved their lives, hid them out, saved them, uh, made an airfield by hand right under the uh, you know Nazi noses and they didn't realize what they were doing. So this book I'm reading right now is quite interesting. So if you're interested in little nuggets of the Second World War. The Forgotten 500 is an absolutely fascinating book, and I and I enjoy it because it, it just talks about things about history because there's so much chaos in history, and, they, and you forget that there's people, regular civilians like the nurses uh, and the hospital trains that did their best to help as many people as they could. And this book is about people helping other total strangers. And I think in war, you know, war is something very very hor- horrific, but even in that, you know that there's people uh, who, who shine their best when the situation is the absolute worst. They help other people. They put their lives 
you know, uh, uh, you know, they don't put other people's lives ahead of their own. And this is the Forgotten 500, the untold story of the man who risked all for the greatest rescue mission of World War II by Gregory Freeman. Yes. Alexander, I was really happy to have you with us today. Very pleased to work with you for our show. And when you finish your next book, I very much suspect that you are working on a next book. I am. It's coming out in June, and I'm very proud of it. But it's not. It has nothing to do with the Second World War. It's something totally different. But it's historical as well. Uh, it's about his, the history of U.S. presidents and the sport of golf. So that's, I don't know anything about golf, but I will try and invite you back here again when the book is out. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you, Alexandra.